BST Talk number 219. It's Wednesday, September 5th, 2012. Before I get to the interview, I just wanted to let you know that in October I'll be traveling to the country of Georgia. That's not Georgia in the United States, but Georgia, the country with the capital of Tbilisi. So I didn't know if there's any BST users there. So uh, if so, get in touch with me. It'd be interesting to say hello. All right, now on to the interview. Today on BST Talk, we're speaking once again with David Gwynn. Welcome back to the show. Hello. And it's been a couple of years since I've talked to you, so I, from what I can see, you've been quite busy in, in OpenBSD. So I guess what project are you working on most of the time these days? Um, it's hard to say because work and life have got a lot busier recently, so OpenBSD is something I have to make time for very aggressively to actually do anything on it these days. So the things I am supposed to be working on are hardware support, drivers and such. That's an endless That's battle. A, I know. Well, the most recent example was a new version of the Mega 8 SAS adapters came out and we ordered some servers with them. So to use them, I actually had to sit down and write some code. So it was a good excuse to do some drivers at work. But um, yes, that stuff happens quite a lot. Now this is... Interfacing the drivers also with the uh, bio driver? Uh, eventually, yes. I'll get to that soon. But getting IO working so I can actually run services on top of them has been the priority at the moment. Do you get much help from the vendor? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> so it, I'm, I'm always curious with people that, that are writing drivers, sort of what the process is. I mean, are you just poking random things and seeing what happens? Or, or what do you go on? Um, in this case, the... There's Linux and FreeBSD drivers I used as a reference, and the chips from LSI tend to be um, pretty sane, so they're not hard to get your head around. And looking at just what the code does in other operating systems is enough to get me going, pretty much. Sure. um, The LSI ones are not... Like I said, they're very sane. There's other vendors who have completely insane register layouts, and the chip operates in very weird and wonderful ways, and trudging through the Linux code is um, difficult. The LSI ones are very nice in comparison. And I know there's been a trend in, in certain hardware to not really have everything in the hardware where you have um, code that has to be uploaded. I'm thinking of wireless devices. Do you find that yes. in, in the RAID controllers too? No, the RAID controllers, because you tend to want to boot from them, they have to operate without the um, operating system doing much. So they're usually fully functional when you turn the machine on. And when you want to talk to them in the operating system, you just poke reads and writes into them. You don't have to upload firmware or anything like that. It's a bit different to network, well, some network devices where you don't need it to boot from, so they can cut some corners with putting flash onto the chip and things like that. Now, often when I'm doing hardware raid, uh, when the server boots up, I set up all the raid levels uh, in the... I guess you'd call it the BIOS or whatever it is, of the firmware yep. even before the operating system loads. And then it just appears to be yet another disk to my operating system. Are you reaching further into it? Uh, BIOS CTL is supposed to reach into it a bit more like that. But um, 
figuring out a sane way to use BioCTL to configure software and hardware and adjust with, to the little differences between all the hardware vendors. Um, that's still something I'm trying to figure out in my head. But the intention is to go there eventually. Like I've said before that hardware RAID is kind of like a network card. It, everyone thinks it's very special and different and things like that, but at the end of the day, it's a disk with some disks behind it, so there's some commonality. So we should be able to address that like we do with IF config. Yeah, the the biocontrol tools, I think, are, are elegant. They're very straightforward. So um, yes. the more that, that it can support, the better, I'd say. Yes. I think the issue is just... Um, the differences in terminology and layout and the different abstractions between the actual physical disk and the logical disk, um, the variations there, um, like you can get your head around it in a high-level sense, but the actual implementation of those abstractions makes it difficult to get the interface easy to use, if that makes sense. Not for the user of BioCTL, but for the implementation behind it. And, and not to start a flame war, but... Where do you fall on the uh, hardware versus software RAID debate? Um, as I get older, I lean more towards software RAID. Um, the less abstractions between you and the um, disk um, makes it easier to do smart things higher up the stack, in my opinion. But finding a good software stack is very difficult. Yeah, I, I know for me with the hardware stuff, I do find quite often it's really easy, you know, when a drive is bad to yank it out and jam another one yep. back in and magic happens. But I guess yep. I've also had raid firmware where, you know, yeah. it's just killing disks and you keep shipping them back for uh, warranty replacement. And eventually they tell you, oh, wait, you might want to update some firmware on the yeah. raid controller. So I, I've seen both sides. Yes. And as time goes on, you get smarter abstractions further up the stack. So if you look at, um, if you, if you look at Amazon's Dynamo paper or implementations like React or Voldemort or Cassandra or something, it's dealing with keeping your data alive and redundant and available at a much, much different layer of the stack to the disk. And at the end of the day, what you care about is being able to get to your data, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, just as I get older and look at these things more. I care more about being able to get to it from the application sense and having a highly available disk becomes secondary to that. So I think the trend in the future is to move towards these different ways of storing data rather than having to think about everything in terms of keeping your disks redundant. And one of the abstraction layers is the SCSI protocol. Yes. And, and you know, I think a lot of stuff you see today also, maybe in, in uh, some of the servers I've been purchasing, is not just... Um, you know, traditional SCSI, but serial attached ATA and a variety of other protocols. Are those in OpenBSD all hiding behind a SCSI abstraction layer? Um, almost. I think um, OpenBSD very early on made a call that we wouldn't have a logical disk interface on top of hardware RAID controllers. The um, thing we did very early on was put a SCSI emulation layer on top of these RAID controllers. The interesting thing is the industry is kind of caught up to that, and hardware RAID controllers these days um, just present a SCSI interface on top of their logical disks, so we don't have to do the abstraction layer ourselves. So what's happening is SCSI is becoming a protocol rather than just a storage interface, and the RAID vendors are catching up with that and just provide SCSI, and it makes the implementation within the operating system a lot easier because you just have to talk uh, well-known and well-understood protocol um, but um, serial ATA um, is extremely common just because it's in everything pretty much 
and AZA generally. So um, you see operating systems like Linux and Solaris have put their ATA implementation behind a SCSI ATA translation layer, and we've also done that. However, we have older PCI IDE devices which have not been moved under that abstraction layer yet. So we're sitting across both worlds at the moment. So but the it, intention is whenever you have a hardware um, storage device, it should appear as a SCSI disk eventually. And that's a matter of just constantly updating all the drivers to get on the new... I think um, the only outstanding one, well, the only one on modern hardware we care about is the ATA um, stuff, the legacy parallel ATA stuff. Um, pretty much everything modern we've developed has appeared as a SCSI disk, so um, SD cards and USB keys and all that sort of stuff, they all appear as SCSI disks these days. Um, but on older architectures, um, there are some um, direct disk device drivers which don't implement the SCSI, to SCSI translation layer, which we might go back and look at one day if interest gets to me. Now, when you abstract everything as SCSI, does that mean that you're unable to take advantage of the different performance characteristics of different types of storage? I'm, I'm thinking, um, you know, everyone's talking about flash drives or, you know, if you're storing on thumb drives, you know, can you, are you able to see that and, and adjust how things are done? Uh, SCSI is flexible enough to be able to tell you enough about the device to do that. I think the only exception is if it's a um, SATA CD drive or a SATA tape drive or something like that. There isn't really a good way of identifying that at the protocol level. But for flash drives, they tend to advertise those as thinly provisioned SCSI disks, which means that the logical block layout bears no relation at all to the physical block layout, so you don't have to take into consideration the rotation of the heads and things like that, and that's enough for us to tweak the software to use the disks more efficiently. And there's other features within the SCSI protocol that let you advertise how big the physical blocks are underneath the logical blocks, so if you have a flash disk or a one of those modern SATA disks which has 4K physical blocks but still advertises 512-byte logical blocks, the SCSI protocol already has messages in there for being able to communicate that to you, so you can take advantage of it. Has the SCSI, SCSI protocol evolved that much, or the people who developed it had some pretty good foresight? Um, um, there's, I think the protocol has proved to be flexible enough to support this stuff, because it is basically a command frame with an optional data payload, so your reads and writes. To actually do a read and write on SCSI, there's um, like a different read and write for every revision of the SCSI um, protocol that's been released, but the later protocols include backward support for the older ones. So if they need to add new features, they can just create a new version of SCSI, create a new message with the extra features in it, and as long as the newer protocol includes all the backwards compatibility stuff and devices implement that backwards compatibility, then life's okay. I think, you know, in Internet time, the SCSI protocol has been around forever, so it's amazing that it's yes. still being used today. Yeah, well, I think, yeah, just because of its flexibility and its um, prevalence, it's won out pretty much. The flexibility is what made it so prevalent, I think. So once we get successful at representing blocks, how is the performance and, and our ability, you know, when I think of SCSI and, and particularly RAID, you know, not only is there redundancy, but also trying to create either gargantuan volumes or fast volumes. And how is OpenBSD in those areas? 
Um, I, I think Kenneth Westerback would be better able to answer how we deal with large block devices. What I have been focusing on is more about how to get enough commands in flight to take advantage of the modern hardware. So if you look at SCSI 20 years ago or something like that, it was a, it was a bus that supported maybe seven devices with an adapter on it. Um, each of those devices only had one or two command slots which you could issue a read and write to. But these days you have SAS controllers and RAID controllers which have extremely wide buses. So you're talking about being able to manage 128 or 512 devices on a single adapter and each of those devices may be able to use up to a 1,000 command slots. But the problem with that is if you have... The adapter might only be able to keep um, its own set of command slots in the air. If it might only have 512 command slots. So if you have a device that has a thousand command slots and adapter that can only keep 512 of those in flight, and then you have 500 of those devices, the issue in my mind, which I've been trying to deal with, is how you effectively schedule access to those command slot resources. And you've got fine grain locking at the SCSI layer, but there's perhaps less refined locking at the kernel level. Uh, yeah, the fine grain locking in the SCSI mid-layer in OpenBSD is kind of irrelevant at the moment because we're still under the big giant lock. It's just that since I made so many changes in there, I tried to think ahead and make it so it was easy to spot the places where we do care about locking. So I've got the locks there, but I can't tell if they're actually right because the whole kernel's big locked still. So I think that's less important than um, getting the command resources um, scheduled because at the end of the day your CPUs are always going to get much much faster but disks are getting faster at a much slower rate and the adapters are becoming capable at a slower rate than the host CPU so I'm happy to spend some time um, spinning on the big giant lock but if I can't use all the command slots then I've lost more if that makes sense yeah and I, I've never deployed openBSD in a in a situation where the CPU is my limiting factor so for me it hasn't been too much of an issue. Yeah, it gets quite um, embarrassing on very wide machines. So where I work, we are able to buy relatively large machines. So we're talking something with 48 real CPUs in it mm. and running OpenBSD on that and trying to do an IO workload against a, against a bunch of disks. You do notice the um, big giant lock contention, but I consider myself on the fringe of deployments with that kind of stuff. So um, I don't complain about it too loud. I just try and fix it when I have the time. And how do you decide when a driver's ready? You know, you've, you've got a lot of people's information in your hands, so what's, what's the process for vetting the driver? Um, I'm very optimistic <laughs> with my own code, so I tend to... Well, the OpenBSD process is you commit early, commit often, so I try to get as much of the work into the tree as possible, and I try to make it available so people can hit on it, um, and it just follows the normal OpenBSD release process where... A, at a point in time, a line is drawn in the sand and we say we're testing for release now. Um, that's when I stop making crazy changes to the code and um, try and stress it as much as possible to make it reliable. But um, with the new MegaRaid driver that I did for the MegaRaid SAS Fusion boards, um, I had the driver in production about two days after I got it working. So um, I'm pretty optimistic with my own code. <laughs> Yeah, back when I, I had a bit more time in my life to test, I used to yes. have fun, um, you know, just setting up systems and, you know, yanking drives and doing all kinds of fun stuff and seeing whether or not it would survive, which it always did. I was kind of amazed. Uh, yes. So, <laughs> unfortunately, I haven't been able to do that much myself these days. 
Yeah. And besides storage, uh, I guess you've been doing some stuff also in the network layer, uh, particularly around, I guess, jumbo frames or, or high data rate networking? Um, yes. Uh, that goes back a while. Um, if we're talking about jumbo frames, I think you're referring to the MCL GetEye stuff. Yeah, and I was wondering how you say that, so I'm glad you said it first. <laughs> um, I think it's short for MBuff Cluster Get. And the I stands for an interface-specific one. Hmm. It, it's a horrible name for a horrible <laughs> interface. So um, it's easier to send diffs with MCL get I in it than saying it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what happened there was a few, like a few years ago, I was looking at a way we could enable jumbos by default on all our network cards without consuming all the memory in the kernel. So on a lot of our architectures, the kernel doesn't get to play with the full memory of the host computer. So even if you have a system with 4 gig of RAM in it, the kernel might only be able to deal with 60 or 70 meg of it. So if you have a network card that can do jumbo frames, so we're talking 9 kilobyte frames, and it can manage a ring of 500 of them, you're talking about a very significant chunk of the kernel's memory just disappeared to manage a ring for jumbo frames, which people might not actually use. Like even though jumbos are on most network cards these days, the number of places I see them is very small compared to the hardware that's out there. So what I was trying to do is figure out how we can conservatively allocate memory for these jumbo-capable network cards and still have um, still have them work pretty much. So what MCL GetI um, does is it... Well, taking a step back, most all other operating systems, when they have a network card, there's a ring that points to MBUFs or packet packets that they receive packets into. So when a packet comes off the wire and enters the network card, it gets put into memory pointed at by this ring of descriptors. Uh, usually these rings of descriptors have 512 entries in them, so we're talking about being able to receive up to 512 packets at a time. And each of those packets, if they're jumbos, is 9K, so significant chunk of memory. So every other operating system, if they enable jumbos, they fill that ring and point to it all the time. So they just take the hit with the memory. Um, I was trying to make things a bit better. So what MCL GetEye does is only fill a small number of the slots on the ring. So instead of all 512, it allocates memory for two of them by default. And... it keeps track of which MBUFs are used in every interrupt. So if you actually receive two of packets in an interrupt and therefore use the two descriptors we give you, we think there's going to be more traffic and let you allocate three in the next time. And if you use the three descriptors in the next interrupt, then we think you're going to need it, need more the next time and allocate more. So what it, the original implementation of MCL GetEye was for, it was to conservatively allocate MBUFs on network cards. So it would only allocate the amount of memory you actually need to move traffic. Um, when I was talking to Theo about this, he saw a bit further into the future and said, and saw that we could have a back pressure mechanism as well. So on servers that handle a lot of traffic, so you're talking firewalls or just file servers and um, firewalls and things like that, at some point you end up doing so many packets a second that you run out of CPU time. And uh, the thing he brought to the table was saying, when we detect that we've run out of CPU time, what we can do is restrict the amount of packets we give to the network card so in the future it won't um, be doing too many packets and it will give us some CPU time back. Now, is this going to be competing with existing 
TCP/IP congestion control mechanisms? Um, yes. So in my systems here, well, in OpenBSD over the years, we have developed several places where we mitigate um, CPU congestion. Um, one of those is the PF congestion queue stuff, and another one is the IP input queues and things like that. On my systems here, I rely solely on MCLKI by blowing out the limits on those other things. So the PF congestion stuff never gets hit. The IP input queue stuff never gets hit. I rely solely on MCLKI to make sure that the system doesn't get overwhelmed with traffic. Hmm. Yeah. Now, when, when you have a, a networking person who also is a storage person, it, it makes me wonder. I, I've heard about operating systems that have this trick, and I don't know whether OpenBSD does, where uh, I guess you can lift data off the disk and send it straight to the networking card in order to hand, you know increase your performance. Does OpenBSD do that? And am I talking about the right thing here? Um, this is the send file stuff. Yeah, yeah. OpenBSD currently doesn't have a send file implementation, I think. Um, I think we're a step in the right direction with the socket splicing um, bits that have been put in in the last few years. But um, I don't think we have the code on the file side of things to be able to splice a file descript like a file on disk with the network socket to get the um, send file implementation working, hmm. if that makes sense. Sure. So we're a lot closer than we were, but we're not quite there yet. Now, you mentioned that you're using OpenBSD in, in your uh, your work there. Are you able to talk a little bit about the different ways that you implement it and you know what workloads you use it for? Um, the thing I spend most of my well, the most obvious implementation we have here of OpenBSD is on the firewalls. Um, I think we have. It's hard to say because we don't really know who uses OpenBSD, but I do have a rather large firewall compared to most people. I think so. Um, I work at the University of Queensland in the Faculty of Engineering, Architecture, and IT, and I effectively run the entire stack within that faculty and the lowest layer in that is the network so what we have is 13 or 14 buildings with staff in it and each of those buildings has a network for putting staff computers on we have a network in each building for the lab machines and we have a network in each building for um, managed devices so we're talking printers and um, webcams for security and things like that each of those buildings has a separate set of those networks so 13 or 14 times 3, we're suddenly talking about 40 networks. Each of those gets terminated on a central file, a central pair of firewalls. Uh, we have a bunch of DMZs in the machine room to segregate traffic at the back end. So we're talking about managing 60 networks. And because we're using VLANs on CARP and things like that, the firewall has over 100 um, interfaces. Um, Physical we, or, or virtual? It has... Three physical interfaces, <laughs> and um, we sit 60 VLANs on top of it, and then the CARP address interfaces on top of that. Um, we talk to the upstream using OSPF to get the default routes and um, do um, multipath routing, but inside the network on the client side, our side of it, we just use straight CARP and advertise it as the default gateway on each of those networks. Um, we have worked with the upstream to add support. So OSPF, as a protocol, by default, has very um, long timeouts for detecting when a peer's um, gone. So by default, it waits for... Uh, uh, sorry, the hello time on OSPF is it announces itself every 10 seconds, and after it misses three of those hello 
announcements, it decides that the peer is dead. So we're talking about up to 40 seconds where the upstream might be gone, but we don't know about it because the hello time is uh, so slow. But Cisco have an extension to their OSPF implementation called um, Fast Hellos, which let you have uh, second timeouts. So I added support for that in OpenBSD's OSPF implementation, so we get very rapid failover if the upstream goes away and things like that. Um, I'd love to see your pf.conf file. (laughs) um, It's kind of embarrassing. The interesting thing is the faculty... we. Um, took over the faculty about two years ago. So previously, I was working for a school within the faculty, but um, with the ever and not never-ending reorganizations in all big organizations, we effectively took over the faculty, which meant I inherited uh, co-workers free BSD firewalls. And he, for the remainder of the faculty that we inherited, he had six separate free BSD firewalls using IPF still. And he had between two and 16,000 rules on each of them. And when I took over the faculty, I consolidated everything onto our pair of OpenBSD firewalls. And just by consolidating and taking advantage of OpenBSD's um, lists and tables and um, the language features in pf.conf, I got the rule set for everything down to 4,500 rules. So we're talking something like 40,000 rules down to 4,000 rules just by using pf.conf language features. And since then, we've got the rule set down to about um, 2,300 lines. Wow. What do you use to to edit that and manage that? I use Vi, and uh, we keep track of changes by committing it to a subversion repository. Wow. That's a lot of rules. (laughs) Yeah. My my, uh, maybe 30 or 40 rules sound uh, pretty meager now. Yeah, well, yeah, it's just a bigger environment. I don't think many people get to play with 60 interfaces at a time and look at ways to deal with that effectively. Like some of the stuff in OpenBSD makes it really easy if you look at interface groups, for example. Like egress. Yeah, egress. But um, like I said, we have 13 buildings and they each have a staff network. It doesn't make sense to replicate the rules for the staff networks 13 times. So we put all the staff interfaces into a staff interface group and then we just write rules in PF against that staff interface. And um, because of way interface groups, we automatically get the policy applied to all of them in one go. So we edit one rule instead of 13. Makes things um, very easy. I usually use it for hardware abstractions. I don't bake my driver names in there. Yeah, well, since um, we took over... Um, three years ago, I've replaced the interfaces three times and had to edit um, one line in pf.conf each time. So I know what you mean, definitely. Yeah. Uh, so with the upcoming releases of, of OpenBSD, are there some features maybe that you're not working on but that you're personally most excited about? Because um, uh, it's hard to answer that one just because I've been so busy at work and I've been working against current for so long, I kind of miss when the releases happen. Mm. I think um, even though I have been busy, I think I have done some work for the previous release. I think I replaced the TFTP implementation. And in this, in the so in 5.2, TFTPD will be completely different. And in 5.3, the TFTP proxy has been replaced as well. Mm. Um, I, I use the uh, OpenBSD TFTP daemon even on my 
Debian Linux systems. It's oh, actually, really? Yeah, it, you actually find in, in Debian uh, a lot of the OpenBSD smaller uh, network daemons are in there as, okay. as defaults, yeah. I wonder if they'll adopt the new one. Yeah, well, who knows? <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Um, the reason I rewrote TFTP is we replaced our lab imaging infrastructure here. So we used to have a product where it would effectively unicast the image to each of the lab machines and the lab image was getting incredibly large and we because we took over so much stuff we suddenly had a lot of lab machines so my boss was sitting there for three weeks at the start of semester carefully scheduling access to the imaging server to get the image out onto so many machines um, so we replaced that with BitTorrent which meant we had to replace the um, boot environment as well and we hit scalability problems with TFTP mm. <laughs> so that's why I rewrote it I could see why you might be working on jumbo frames too yeah, though I only tend to use Jumbo Frames on the PFSync interface. It's still not a good story on client networks, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah. And TFTP is a protocol. I mean, it could benefit from Jumbo Frames, but you don't want to really do serious work with TFTP. Yeah, I, I use it for my Cisco config backups, so <laughs> okay. nothing too major. Cool. On. Yeah. All right, well, are there any other things that you've been working on that you want to talk about today? Um. It's hard to say. I think, um, yeah, just playing with the hardware has been the thing I've been working on most recently. Um, it is interesting looking at the Linux drivers and how they deal with the command scheduling and comparing it to OpenBSD and FreeBSD too. Um, they're extremely optimistic and conservative at the same time and still get it um, bad, if that makes sense. <laughs> the way OpenBSD is set up... Um, yeah, you're able to advertise the full capabilities of the hardware the whole way through to the actual device driver, and if there's any contention on it, it just suddenly backs off and starts doing round-robin scheduling for all the things that need to access it. But if there's no contention, every device is able to use full um, resources. Every other operating system is still a bit behind on that, surprisingly. How easy is it for you to get a hold of the hardware you need? Um... I have a table behind me full of hardware, so I have plenty of things to keep me occupied. All right, people, yeah. get, people send me stuff to work on, and I just have to find the time to do it. Sure. All right, well, I mean, thank you for you know all your hard work. I know I've definitely benefited from it, and I'm sure a lot of other people have, and, and we see your name all over the place, so uh, you're clearly doing something, which is great. Thank you. All right, well, uh, I guess I, I look forward to... Uh, plugging in some random devices and seeing whether discs spin up. That's the big one. <laughs> well, if it appears as a SCSI disc, that's my fault. <laughs> All right. Great. Well, thank you for taking some time for the interview, and uh, I look forward to speaking to you again maybe in another couple of years and see what you've been up to there. Okay, thank you. All right. If you'd like to leave comments on the website or reach the show archives, you can find them at bsdtalk.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to send me an email, you can reach me at bitgeist at yahoo.com. That's B-I-T-G-E-I-S-T at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. This has been BSD Talk number 219.